Welcome to Bent on Education podcast, a podcast focusing on evidence-based review of physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, and other anesthesia-related topics. I'll discuss being a clinical preceptor, a mentor, and a leader. This podcast is by CRNA for SRNAs and others seeking to build their basic knowledge base. So let's get bent on education. Today, we are going to talk about respiratory physiology. Respiratory physiology is one of the most important topics that we discuss in nursing, in healthcare, uh, in anesthesia, because our understanding of how our patients are breathing and what our expectations are as far as ventilating our patients is very important to uh, recognize and understand. So off we go with respiratory physiology. We're going to, um, you know, not go too far into the weeds with a lot of the content area. I will recommend some of the medical physiology books for you to uh, reference, but, you know, the basics and the basic understanding is always good to know. The first aspect that we should discuss are the muscles of ventilation. If we understand how and what muscles are utilized in order for people to breathe, then it's easier to understand when we see these muscles working overtime that somebody is having difficulties with breathing. Um, that would be a, a very simple and straightforward assessment. So let's begin with the diaphragm. The diaphragm is the main muscle of ventilation. Um, what's interesting and very important to understand is how is negative pressure generated. So when the diaphragm contracts, negative pressure is generated specifically in the intra-plural spaces. And what happens is this allows for air to flow into the lungs. So when air gets into the lungs, how does air move out of the lungs? The diaphragm then has to relax. And when the diaphragm relaxes, that volume of air that is um, in the thoracic cavity decreases and air moves out of the lungs. Recall that the diaphragm consists of slow twitch muscle fibers. These are those type 1 muscle fibers. Roughly 50% of the diaphragm's musculature of, um, are of these fatigue-resistant fibers. Of course, that changes whether the patient or person is a child or if they're elderly. We won't get into the differences in age groups, but just know that most adults, um, they have roughly 50% of these type 1 muscle fibers. When we talk about the accessory muscles, um, they, like I indicated in the beginning, they are indicative of your patient or yourself, your work of breathing. <clears throat> The external intercostals assist with inhalation um, and the internal intercostals actually provide some support for exhalation. When we consider the abdominal muscles, they probably are the most important expiratory accessory muscles that we have. Uh, what the abdominal muscles do is they assist with depressing the ribs and producing a forced expiration when there's an increase in the intra-abdominal pressure. So that makes a lot of sense. 
Think about when you cough, what happens with your abdominal muscles, they tighten. Also, we have cervical strap muscles. So these are important inspiratory accessory muscles as well. What the cervical strap muscles do is that they help to elevate the sternum and the upper chest. So when this group of muscles elevate the sternum and the upper chest, it increases the dimension of the thoracic cavity. So you might want to sit and try that for a second just to see physiologically what's going on when you take a nice deep breath, what happens when those cervical strap muscles elevate your sternum and the upper chest. Remember that the when work of breathing increases, so when a person is having a really tough time breathing, that those larger muscles of the back become involved. When this happens, we are concerned as providers, right? Because when you see somebody using those back muscles as accessory muscles to breathe, that work of breathing is increased um, exponentially. Let's discuss a little bit about the structure of the lungs. Remember that the lungs are contained in the thoracic cavity. The thoracic cavity consists of your 12 thoracic vertebrae, of course your 12 pairs of ribs and your sternum. Um, in between each pair of ribs are the intercostal muscles. That makes sense, in between the rib spaces, that intercostal space. Recall that the mediastinum separates the lungs medially. Makes sense again. Um, the anatomic divisions correspond to the branching of the proximal conducting airways. Uh, this is important to know that the conducting airways are those areas of the lungs that conduct clear, warm, and moisten the air that we breathe in. <clears throat> Remember that the right lung is larger than the left lung. And the right lung has three lobes, whereas the left lung only has two lobes. And the lungs, ha the lungs have 10 segments that are involved um, with their uh, anatomy as well. As we look at the airway, we always begin with the trachea. The trachea is immediately distal to the larynx. Um, so the posterior aspect of the trachea if you think about it, it's more membranous because it actually allows for some flexibility since the structure of the trachea and the esophagus are near each other. So could you imagine if the trachea were more of a very firm structure, it would be very difficult and it may hurt even when you were eating food and you were swallowing food. So this flexibility um, in the trachea allows for food to be swallowed without relative difficulty. Distal to the trachea, so as you go down, is the carina. The carina is the most sensitive area of the trachea and the larynx for triggering the cough reflex. So you'll hear people say, you know, if you cough, you're basically tickling the carina. And when you start to intubate patients and place airways, you'll know if you're too far in because a patient will start coughing if their muscle relaxation has worn off. This is because the endotracheal tube is most likely touching the carina. Recall that the right lung, it divides into the right upper lobe bronchus and the bronchus intermedius. Um, and from the intermedius, it divides into the right middle and right lower lobe bronchi. The sinus is the um, functional unit of the lung, which is composed of respiratory bronchioles, alveolar ducts, alveolar sacs, and finally your alveoli. Remember that the alveoli is where gas exchange occurs, um, and this is between the parenchyma and the lung vasculature. So these concepts are relatively basic, but should be 
able to be understood and explained as well. So when we talk about the left side, the left main bronchus divides into the left upper and the lower low bronchi. So from the lobar levels, there are further divisions from the segmental branches, which then divides anywhere from 5 to 25 generations, depending on the position of the lungs. Once we get into the vasculature of the lungs, it's very important to understand as well. There are two types of vasculature within the lungs, the bronchial vasculature and the pulmonary circulation. The bronchial vasculature provides oxygenated systemic blood, which gives nutrients to the tissues of the bronchi, the viscera, um, the visceral pleura, um, and the pulmonary vasculature. It isn't involved in alveolar gas exchange. So that's the important thing to recognize about the bronchial vasculature is that it is not involved in alveolar gas exchange. The pulmonary circulation, this is the aspect that interfaces with the alveoli. So when we talk about pulmonary circulatory, this takes deoxygenated blood and sends it to the pulmonary capillaries where it interfaces again with the alveoli. This is where alveolar gas exchange does happen. Um, oxygen is absorbed and CO2 is excreted. So remember that the pulmonary arteries, they bifurcate, remember, into the left and right main pulmonary arteries, and of course they further divide. Um, blood in the pulmonary arteries is typically deoxygenated, and the pulmonary venous blood is oxygenated, which is opposite of systemic circulation. So you have to think, really think about it when you start talking about pulmonary circulation, that it is opposite of systemic circulation. What's really important to understand, I feel like I keep saying that, but it's very important to understand the breathing and lung mechanisms as well. When we talk about spontaneous ventilation, we need to consider that the pressure in the alveoli is greater than the intrathoracic pressure when a patient or when we ourselves are spontaneously ventilating. So um, alveolar pressure is the same as atmospheric pressure. So other than alveolar collapse, alveolar pressure and atmospheric um, pressure at end expiration and inspiration are going to be the same. Intrapleural pressure is roughly negative five centimeters of water pressure. Um, and this is specifically at end expiration. Remember when the diaphragm and the intercostals contract, inspiration occurs. The intrathoracic volume at that point increases and a new intrapleural pressure is then generated. So at that time, the intrapleural pressure is roughly negative eight to negative nine centimeters of water pressure. When this happens, the alveolar pressure decreases and why it does that is to maintain a transpulmonary pressure of about five centimeters of water pressure. So what happens is this generates a pressure gradient between the alveoli and the upper airway. The diaphragm, when it relaxes, the intrapleural pressure returns to that negative five centimeters of water pressure. Consider the fact too that when our transpulmonary pressure does not support the expanded alveoli at these volumes and the alveoli begins to collapse, air flows from the alveoli to the upper airway. Um, at that point, the previous end expiratory pressure and the size of the individual alveoli then return to their previous size. And then the, 
the cycle starts over again. And this is with each and every breath. So you can imagine we're breathing roughly, I don't know, 8 to 16, possibly 20 times per minute. So this is what's happening each time we take a breath. On the other hand, um, mechanical ventilation, so that's when we are artificially ventilating someone, we are trying to create the same situation as when they are spontaneously ventilating. It doesn't always happen to the specifications that we like, but we do our best as providers when we are using a ventilator uh, to mechanically ventilate a patient. So when gas flows into the alveoli, the flow continues until um, alveolar and Uh, that pressure in the upper airway are roughly equal. So when positive pressure stops, expiration occurs passively. Remember that when you breathe in, you don't, your body doesn't have to tell yourself to breathe out. That's a passive occurrence. Another positive pressure breath will then happen and, uh, and you know, the cycle then continues. Okay. So you're taking a breath in, your body doesn't tell yourself it has to breathe out, but then you take another breath in. So this is just another um, uh, passive breath that occurs. Consider that movement of the lung parenchyma depends on overcoming resistance and the work necessary to overcome that resistance is called work of breathing. The lung parenchyma and the thoracic cavity, what happens with um, those two aspects is that there's an elastic property that's related to the lung parenchyma and the thoracic cavity. Remember that fluid lines each of the alveolus so that we have a gas fluid interface, if you will. And when you think of a bubble, which is the picture that's commonly noted in a lot of your textbooks, they'll give you a picture of a bubble um, that we can then think of surface tension. So remember that for a bubble to remain inflated, the gas pressure inside the bubble needs to exceed the gas pressure on the outside of the bubble. So we talk about certain laws of chemistry, laws of physics. So whose law is this? This is considered the law of Laplace. So that's L-A, capital P-L-A-C-E. When we talk about the law of Laplace, the pressure is two times the, uh, two times the surface tension divided by the radius. Trust me, this will make sense at some point. So what, is, what does this equation tell you? Is that the greater the, or the higher the surface tension, the greater the chance of the alveolar collapse. So what helps the lungs to not collapse? This would be the production of surfactant. We've all heard of that term, surfactant. So what does surfactant do? The surfactant, um, its job is to enable the alveolus to remain expanded or open more readily. Just because you have some surfactant production, there are certain disease processes where you may have a decrease in your surfactant production. Typically, you know, prematurity is a, a good example. That doesn't mean that all of the alveolus are collapsed in a premature infant. It just means that its ability to stay open is not as significant as if they had Um, you know, normal surfactant production. So it makes sense that the higher the concentration of surfactant, the more surface tension, um, surface tension, sorry, is reduced. Let's talk about lung compliance. Very important um, concept. Um, 
Elastic recoil is a good measurement of compliance. When we look at the equation for compliance, it is understandable that the higher the pressure needed to create a change in volume, the lower the compliance and the higher the elastic recoil. I'll repeat that again. When you look at the, the equation of compliance, the higher the pressure needed to create a change in volume, the lower the compliance and the higher the elastic recoil. So looking at lung compliance, we're looking at the change in the lung volume over the change in the transpulmonary pressure. When we talk about chest wall compliance, what you're looking at differs from lung compliance. So with chest wall compliance, your comparison is that of the change in the chest wall over the, vol the change in transthoracic pressure. So think about your everyday life, or if you're in healthcare, think about your patients. Things like secretions, inflammation, fibrosis, these things may cause fluid overload and subsequently change a patient's compliance. Resistance to gas flow. There are two types of flow. Um, so although both are always present in the respiratory cycle, the physics or how they act are very different. Laminar flow versus turbulent flow. Um, you know, laminar flow is that smooth travel of air or fluid um, just in general. Now, we don't want to talk about fluid in the lungs, of course, so we're talking about airflow when we talk about uh, laminar flow within the lungs. Velocity, pressure, and other properties are consistent when we talk about laminar flow. Everything is just moving in a nice um, streamlined condition. When we talk about turbulent flow, things are in a disorderly pattern. Uh, the best example that I can give you of turbulent flow is if you have a pot of water, for example, and you take your hand and you just start, you know, moving the water around, that flow is turbulent. Nothing is moving in an organized fashion. It's very disorganized. The same thing can happen with air where you have a disorganized, disorderly, random movement of gas. That would be considered your turbulent flow. Reynolds number is gonna be very important. Um, Reynolds number predicts the pattern of flow of fluid or air. And depending on the Reynolds number, one can determine when flow changes from laminar flow to turbulent flow. So your textbooks will tell you that a Reynolds number less than roughly 2000 or 2100 would indicate laminar flow and above that number would indicate when flow or air becomes turbulent flow. So I remember in school that we used to talk about Burt Reynolds. So some of you are very young and you may not even know who he is, but this might still help you. Um, so we would remember Reynolds number by saying Burt Reynolds had 2,000 turbulent relationships. And so we'd recall, oh yeah, turbulent flow is when it is over 2,000. So just these little things that we'd remember. As we look at the equation for Reynolds number, um, this is where N, so it's uh, Reynolds number is N equals PVD um, over micro. And the determinants of these, so N would, I'm sorry, N is um, obviously your Reynolds number, where P is the density of the airflow or fluid, V would be velocity, um, and D is diameter, and micro would be the viscosity of the fluid or the air. 
Of course, when we breathe, um, we have different mechanisms by which we breathe. So one thing we're going to talk about is the central regulation of ventilation. Um, when we talk about how our, you know, the central regulation, this is the maintenance of optimal exchange of your pH, your CO2, and your oxygen. This is provided by the respiratory center, which receives afferent input from chemical stimulation and peripheral chemoreceptors. Your respiratory center is a group of nuclei in four very different, four areas or major areas of the brain. Two are in the medulla and two are in the pons. Um, in the medulla are your inspiratory and expiratory centers, and in the pons is your pneumotaxic and your apneustic centers. This is the exchange of those gases at the level of the alveolus and the um, pulmonary capillary membrane. So we'll discuss in detail these centers in the next few slides. When we talk about neural control, um, remember your inspiratory and your expiratory centers are your medullary centers. Um, your inspiratory center or your dorsal respiratory group, your DRG, if you will, um, is named because of the location in the dorsal medulla. So the neurons are located near the afferent fibers from cranial nerves number nine and 10. So we're looking at your glossopharyngeal and your vagus nerve. Um, there is automaticity in these neurons um, and with normal firings of roughly two seconds. So that's when you'll take a breath, roughly every two seconds. The expiratory um, group or the ventral respiratory group or VRG, you will see it in your textbooks, extends the full length of the ventral medulla or the medulla oblongata. Stimulation of, you know, the muscles of expiration, that what happens is this transmits inhibitory impulses to the apneustic center. <clears throat> When we talk about, remember, the pneumotaxic and the apneustic centers, those are our pontine centers. They're located in the pons. The pneumotaxic center is located in the pons, again, and it communicates signals to the inspiratory center to, in essence, turn off inspiration. So this controls the rate and pattern of breathing and functions to limit respirations. Can you imagine that if this weren't intact, we may breathe who knows, 50, 40, 30 times per minute because there was no functional turning off of the respiratory center. When we discuss the apneustic center, this is located in the lower portion of the pons and it sends signals to the dorsal respiratory group to, in essence, prolong respiration. So sometimes we need our respirations prolonged. If someone's hyperventilating, what do we do? Tell them to slow down. So this is that mechanism by which they can slow down respirations. The midbrain and the cortex is the site of the reticular activating system. So the reticular activating system can be activated to increase the rate and volume of inspiration should that need to happen. We also have reflexes that, um, that the, that the uh, midbrain and cortex are responsible for. Both the swallowing and vomiting reflexes stop inspiration. This makes perfect sense because when somebody vomits or when somebody swallows, we don't want them to be able to breathe in as well um, because we want to avoid aspiration. I know that some of you right now are trying to swallow and take a breath in and it's not going to work. 
The cough reflex is stimulated by irritation to the trachea. Remember, we talked about the uh, carina specifically. So a big inspiratory breath with a forced um, expiratory breath clears whatever it is, whatever irritant is present. That's how that cough reflex gets things out of the airway um, so that, you know, people don't choke. The herring brewer reflex is minorly predominantly weak in humans. Um, So we do discuss it a little bit when we talk about a pediatric patient, but um, after altered inspiration where the lungs are overdistended, this reflex may be present. And what happens with the herring brewer reflex is that it causes an apneic period for those patients. It's mostly seen, again, in the neonatal patient, but at a very, very minor um, minor extent. So when you overinflate the lungs of a neonate um, and then you deflate the lungs, they may have a period of apnea, and that is related to the herring brewer reflex. Remember that these reflexes in the midbrain and the cortical centers affect your ventilatory pattern um, and the respiratory centers uh, that are established at that time. So chemical control of ventilation. When we talk about the chemical um, control of ventilation, we're talking about our central chemoreceptors and our peripheral chemoreceptors. Know that the respiratory center actually regulates ventilation based on these two things, based on the chemical component or the relative chemical content of both oxygen and carbon dioxide. Central um, chemoreceptors, again, located in the medulla, what they do is they actually relay messages based on the pH. Even though carbon dioxide is not sensed directly, it does have an effect on the central chemoreceptors by its conversion to hydrogen ions that alter the pH. So all of these things are interchangeable with one another, chemistry, physics, respiration, we have to understand it all. Remember that carbon dioxide does cross the blood-brain barrier, and at that point it converts into hydrogen ions and then stimulates the central, um, central chemoreceptors. We could talk about how higher altitudes or things like that, hyperthermia, um, hypothermia, not hyperthermia, affect ventilation, but that would just take us down a rabbit hole of CSF um, and how it neutralizes hydrogen ions. So we're going to stop there on that concept. Um, Like I said, we can go down many avenues uh, talking about um, that concept. Your peripheral chemoreceptors, first the carotid bodies, they deliver signals to the respiratory centers based on oxygen and carbon dioxide from the periphery. So these are found at the bifurcation of the common carotid and how they communicate with the respiratory center is by way of the glossopharyngeal nerve. When we look at your other peripheral chemoreceptors that are in the aortic bodies, these are found in the aortic arch. What they do is deliver signals about the partial pressure of oxygen by way of the vagus nerve. This is mostly due to changes in circulation with very little effect on ventilation. So there's definitely much more to synthesize and go through when we talk about chemical control of ventilation. Um, Topics, again, like hyperventilation, but, you know, 
reading through a very good physiology, a medical physiology book like Ganang or Rhodes and Bell or um, Guyton um, will give you all of the details of this. This is just information that you can take with you on the go. So oxygen and uh, carbon dioxide transport, what do we need to know? Let's talk a little bit about ventilation and perfusion. So what needs to happen for gas exchange to occur? Ventil ventilated alveoli needs to be exposed to blood within the pulmonary capillaries. Um, so this constant alveolar pressure is what keeps the alveoli open, remember that. But pressure on the outside of the alveoli is what is considered heterogeneous. So it's not the same in all of the aspects of our lung fields. The upper lobes, middle lobes, and lower lobes are going to be a little bit different. So when you conceptualize that it makes sense that not all of the alveoli are the same size. The alveoli that are in the bases of the lungs, for example, are less inflated at rest. But keep in mind that they are more compliant. Because they're less inflated, there's more room for them to expand. When you consider disease processes such as atelectasis, for example, it makes sense why the breath sounds of a patient and the atelectatic areas are predominantly in the lung bases. These alveoli are much smaller. The bases of the lungs, though, are better ventilated because they are more compliant. So during spontaneous ventilation, more gas is distributed to areas that are more dependent on gravity. That would be the bases of the lungs if we are standing. So if we are in a uh, vertical position. Alveolar perfusion. This is one of those aspects that when I was in school, I was like, wait, I never even knew that this was a thing. So gravity increases the flow of blood to those areas that are dependent areas. Remember the bases of the lungs. In your lungs are what are called the zones of west. And they were first described by a gentleman, a, a, a pulmonary or respiratory physiologist named John West. So the uh, zones of west. Um, they depict the divisions of the lungs based on the relative alveolar arterial, and venous pressure. So physiologically speaking, the pulmonary artery pressure always exceeds pulmonary venous pressure. That's one thing you need to recognize. When we talk about zones of West, there are three specific zones. Uh, he may even describe a fourth zone, but we'll talk about the three specific zones of the zones of West. Zone one is found in the least gravity-dependent areas of the lungs. In zone one, the PA pressure, P little a that is, is low enough that the P big A pressure can result in pulmonary capillary compression and thus limiting perfusion to the lungs. In zone two, which is where a majority of our lungs sit, um, these are the areas where ventilation and perfusion are well matched. So blood flow and airflow is relatively equal. Well-matched, I'll just keep it at that. It's not equal, it's well-matched. So perfusion here is related to the relative pressure difference between the pulmonary artery and the alveolar pressure. And in zone three, this um, area or this zone is the most gravity dependent where perfusion depends on the gravity or gradient 
between the pulmonary artery and the venous pressure. So when we consider the, that anatomy does affect perfusion, the areas of the lungs exposed to a higher pulmonary pressure are the closest to the pulmonary artery, just like ventilation. Perfusion is increased at areas of the lungs that are more gravity dependent. When we talk about the ventilation and perfusion relationship, why match ventilation and perfusion? Why do we care if this is a thing? It's necessary so the, that we can ensure that carbon dioxide and oxygen exchange, ideally ventilation and perfusion would match um, one another. But we know that that doesn't always happen or doesn't even always match, even based on, again, certain disease processes like asthma and COPD. Um, these patients definitely have a mismatching of their ventilation and perfusion. We need to understand dead space and shunting. Um, so when we talk about dead space, this is the areas of the lungs that ventilation exceeds perfusion. Anatomically, we have dead space where it's the pharynx, the trachea, the larger airways, um, and on the alveolar level, obviously, the alveoli, there is some dead space located there as well. Um, when we talk about shunting, shunting is when perfusion exceeds ventilation. So these are areas of the lungs that are not exposed to ventilation, but they are receiving blood flow. Uh, it's most commonly caused, it's the most common cause of poor oxygenation, I should say. And this is when we're comparing arterial and mixed venous saturations. Because of um, how ventilation and perfusion are distributed, you know, we have these mismatches. And recall that both ventilation and perfusion are heterogeneous throughout the lungs, so they're not identical. So these mismatches occur all the time, even in normal um, people. Um, yeah, so dead space, just remember that this is when ventilation exceeds perfusion, and there are two aspects that need to be noted, your anatomical dead space and your alveolar dead space. You should be able to differentiate um, both of those. Just to go into about one-third of a person's minute ventilation when they're spontaneously ventilating, so how we are breathing right now, is indeed dead space because of your pharynx, your trachea, and your larger airways. If we're ventilating a person with positive pressure ventilation like we do in medicine, like we do in nursing, like we do in anesthesia, and we do this rather frequently, dead space ventilation increases even more. So keep that in mind. Um, our shunts, again, primarily affect oxygenation. It can be absolute if capillary flow isn't exposed to ventilation or relative if capillary blood flow is exposed to inadequate ventilation. So keep those things in mind as well. You will go in more depth in ventilation and perfusion and what that relationship looks like as we go on further. Lung volumes. Everybody has seen a chart. Um, well, I shouldn't say everybody. Anybody that is in healthcare, um, nursing, you know, anesthesia, you have seen lung volume charts. Remember that, especially in anesthesia, functional residual capacity, we talk about that all the time. Lung volumes in and, in and of itself vary by the size of the individual. So little, a little known fact, or at least it was a little known fact to me, 
is that normal values are generally related to the height of the patient. Um, so know that when you combine lung volumes, it gives us the term capacity. And we'll talk about a little bit of, um, you know, some of the capacities that are important. We won't talk about the individual volumes because as their names indicate, that's what they are. But let's talk about the capacities you would see on a spirometry reading, for example. So functional residual capacity. What is functional residual capacity? It is the amount of air that is left in the lungs after somebody has exhaled a normal breath. So take a normal breath in, a normal breath out. You have a volume of air left in your lungs and that's your functional residual capacity. The nice thing about that, it is it does serve as a reservoir. This is why hypoxemia is not instant when we have a pulse ox on and somebody stops breathing right away because they have a little bit of air still left in their lungs as a, res- as a reservoir. Closing capacity, the small distal airways um, stay open because of traction from elastic recoil. So what your closing capacity is, is when these small airways begin to close. Another reason why your small distal airways would stay open is because the, they are very lung volume dependent. Um, your closing capacity is not related to your posture, so it doesn't matter if you're sitting up, laying down, your closing capacity will not change. And the last capacity that we're going to talk about is your vital capacity. Your vital capacity is a function of using your muscles because this is the maximum air or amount of air that can be expelled after a maximum exhalational breath and a maximum inhaled, um, exhaled breath. So a maximum inhaled breath and a maximum exhaled breath will give you your vital capacity. So know too that the vital capacity is the total of three specific volumes. It is a total of your tidal volume plus your inspiratory and your expiratory reserve volume. With your vital capacity, your chest wall obviously needs to be compliant. Um, and that's just, you know, one of those things that does happen with vital capacity. So that concludes some of the basic concepts of respiratory physiology. Like I said earlier, we could go into the weeds with pulmonary function testing and flow volume loops and what they mean, but we are going to stop here. Next week, we get to talk about the airway. It's super important, especially for nurse anesthetists and those who manage airways. So until not, until next time, um, you know, that is all for uh, respiratory physiology. See you next week with the airway. Mm-hmm.